Hello, I'm Dan Hill, and I will be the guest on Baron's show. I'll be talking about facial coating, why the middle of the face is the richest visual territory in the world, and how we can apply this to Donald Trump, to Mark Zuckerberg, to Jeff Bezos, and make a difference in your life by knowing what you give away and what other people read in you. Stay tuned to the show. Congratulations. You are tuned into Dolph Barron's Leadership and Loyalty Show, the number one podcast for Fortune 500 executives and those who are dedicated to creating a quantum leap in leadership. Your host, Dolph Barron, he's an executive mentor to leaders like you, a contributing writer for Entrepreneur Magazine, CEO World, and he's been featured on CNN, Fox, CBS, and many other notable sites. Dolph Barron is an international business speaker who was named by Inc. Magazine as one of the top 100 leadership speakers to hire. Now, over to Dolph Barron. Welcome to part two of my interview with Dan Hill. He is a facial coder. He's a best-selling author of several books. He's written eight books. He's been featured on the New York Times. Uh, he has worked with the top 100 companies. I mean, this guy is doing some pretty amazing things. And he is the one who sort of was the innovator at bringing facial coding to business and particularly to leadership. I want to remind you that this episode of Leadership and Loyalty is brought to you in part by our other podcast, which is Curiosity Bites. Curiosity Bites is the answer to the question, how can we bring people together who completely disagree? This is exactly what your mind and your heart and your soul have been craving. It's your chance to sit in on some real and often very intense conversations with some of the world's most interesting people. That includes astronauts, neuroscientists, philosophers, holy people, quantum physicists, skeptics, entrepreneurs, Grammy award-winning entertainers, even some folks you might think of as, well, a-holes who are truly fascinating. Simply go to dovebaron.com and find out how you can sink your teeth into another episode of Curiosity Bites. So I want to welcome you back. I'm here with my guest, Dan Hill. He is a facial coder, and he says that there is a 25-inch map <laughs> territory that features your eyes, your nose, your mouth, that contains the world's most valuable information. We've been talking about how leaders are showing those facial expressions, what it is that they're revealing, and how you can really begin to read that, and how you can work with this as a skill inside of yourself to make yourself a better leader, and realize that you may be um, giving off information that's not really about where you want to go to. Now, we were talking about leaders and leadership, and we were talking about um, really there is elections coming up in November of 2020 uh, with Joe Biden and with Donald Trump. Biden is a little more subtle in his facial expressions, uh, generally speaking, uh, but that doesn't mean they're not glaring to people like you. What do you, just as a sort of counter, what are you what are you seeing there when you watch the the Biden stuff? Well, the first thing with Biden is this electric smile that he likes to throw off. A, a true smile, a Duchenne smile, is when the muscle around the eye tightens, you get the twinkle in the eye. Biden goes there and he goes there happily and easily and often. On the other hand, one of the things you look for is what's the rhythm of the smile. It should mm. come on, it should have a peak, and it should let go. Biden's come on awfully quick. So sometimes I have to wonder whether he really passes the authenticity test with those. But in general, you'd have to say that Biden is a happy camper. Now, the upside to happiness is that you tend to embrace people. You're open to consideration. It has a lot of nice things about it. But there is a downside, potentially, particularly at the higher register of happiness. 
which is that you're what I call a joy bird. You, mm. you just don't pay attention to the details. You, you tend to let them go. And Biden is, of course, famous for his two instances of plagiarism, one with the British labor leader that he quoted on the campaign trail in 1988, Yes. Um, and the, I'm trying to think of what the other one is, but the, oh, it was actually in law school, I believe, at Syracuse Law School, where he was accused of plagiarism uh, in his studies. Mm. So, um, you know, that, that's not a good thing on the other hand. But I would say that's typically where he goes to in a debate style thing. The other thing he'll tend to go to is anger, uh, almost as if to say, you know, just because I'm a happy camper doesn't mean you can punch me without me coming back in turn. So he will go there, but I don't think it comes with as much conviction. Uh, it's a little bit, you know, just I, I'm annoyed for the moment. I don't think there's any kind of deep rage to Biden. I'd say his overall disposition is pretty positive and upbeat. But you had said earlier that, and just to remind people that the uh, leaders who had failed had a dominant, what was that? Sadness. And that's Sadness. not some place he goes to. Right. Uh, sometimes on the stage, because of course he has a problem with speech impediments, uh, he will go to fear for a little bit. But I, I know from having actually gone through and studied every U.S. presidential debate ever and correlated by debate to the Gallup poll results, that the voters will forgive you for fear. Uh, you might remember Amy Klobuchar, who showed a lot of fear, like 20% of her emoting was fear in most of the debates. Right. She still survived almost to the end before they kind of plowed the plug on the whole campaign. So my research indicates that the voters will forgive you for fear. I suspect part of it is that we are afraid of public speaking. People don't even like to talk up at, you know, uh, meetings within the department necessarily. So he seemed to give people a pass on that. But mm. sadness, on the other hand, gets you into trouble. Um, you know, that, that's not an emotion that, that bodes well, and that's not one that uh, Biden has to struggle with. So, so let's go to that for a moment, because I want to make sure that this is clarified for people. Um, because one of the things that I talk about uh, in, in our work is that people bond through vulnerability and yes. that you have to show that vulnerability for people to connect with you. And I want to be clear that vulnerability and sadness are not the same thing. So talk to us about that so they, our listeners, our viewers can understand that. Because a lot of them are going, see, I don't want to show vulnerability. And Dan said that, that doesn't make for a good leader to show sadness. No, no, I, I'm really glad to go here because we need to complicate this discussion a little bit. Yes. I'm going to start with a different emotion and come back to sadness. So Thank anger. You. Yes, you know, there's anger management. You can't hit out at people. This is a bad thing to do in the office and so forth. On the other hand, anger can also indicate that you're trying to control your circumstances. You're trying to make progress. You're trying to break through barriers. Uh, those are all good things. And in fact, in my study of presidential greatness, Anger was not as strong of a correlation as kind of mid-level happiness, but it was one of the stronger correlations to being a good president. So we need to say, you know, to everybody that there are not necessarily good emotions and bad emotions no. or negative emotions. It's how you use the emotion, how much you use the emotion, what's the occasion, how does the other party respond to it? That's why I talk about being on emotion or off emotion. So now let's go back to sadness. Mm -hmm. So yes, sadness, for instance, in sports, I found that sadness was really a problem because on a basketball court, for instance, you need to get down the court. Well, yes. sadness can literally slow you down mentally and physically. So there's clearly a detriment given the circumstance. On the other hand, sadness can also slow you down in the way that you were gonna reflect. 
on something. Yes. You just made a mistake. Something went wrong. It's as if sadness is nature's way of saying, don't trip into the next mistake. You know, mm -hmm. reflect on it a bit. So I think that's a value to sadness. I think sadness is a value in terms of empathy, that you can feel someone else's pain. So yes, there are circumstances in which it's problematic. The reason why I think it's problematic for a president is that one of the causes of sadness is isolation. Yes. To be an effective leader, you can't be isolated. You can't just sit in your bedroom listening to Fox tweeting. News for six hours a day and tweeting. That is not getting out there and interacting with people and taking in their information. And that's why I think the correlation really exists there. The nature of that particular job necessitates that you are taking in lots of vantage points and connecting with lots of people. But you just said something though that I want people to grasp, and that is that the 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 revealing of vulnerability and and i always say this uh please do it with discernment we're not talking about blowing snot bubbles all over everybody walks into the room but by being vulnerable it shows that you took the time to reflect it shows that you took the time to recognize and validate that you are not perfect and you are willing to learn and that's a vitally important um characteristic of a leader so that's why I believe vulnerability is so on point. Yeah, totally agree. So you know, the, slowing uh, down to reflect is great. Slowing down and not moving forward again for 12 terrible. months, not so good. <laughs> no. And, and the other thing that, I, that you brought up, and again, I want to bring back because I think people really need to understand this. Again, in our society where certain feelings are made bad and others are made good, and there's no such thing, um, which is anger. And one of the things I've said is, if you look at the world and you look at who made a massive difference, it was the pissed off people. Now they may not have punched people in the nose, but they had enough anger to say, this has to change. I will, I will peaceably stand in the street as Martin Luther King, but I want you to know I'm upset with this not being treated as an equal. And that's still anger. It doesn't look like pe punching people in the face. And we've got anger glued together with violence and it's not. Anger is the driving force that can make us do things. And as you said, I'm pissed off that I lost the ball there. So I'm going hard at it. And that, you know, and then we go, oh, he scored. Fantastic. Well, that was still anger. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things that anger can do for us is we sense that something's wrong and we want to correct the wrong. So there's a, you know, if it's handled correctly, there's a righteousness to anger that can be fabulous. On the yeah. other hand, anger that leads to rage and hate. Yes. Uh, yes. rarely beneficial. I mean, I, I could probably yep. come up with some instances, but I'm not eager to go there. Uh, right. All of these things matter. And, 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 and some of this goes back to, if we're going to be really honest, is a male-female dichotomy where the women could go ahead and feel the emotions, supposedly, but the guy is not going to feel them. And I think one of those starts with fear. I happen to be a big tennis player, and Boris Becker once said, I don't remember a single point at one at Wimbledon. I only remember the fear of losing. Well, if Boris Becker at 17 at the top of his game can feel fear, guess what? All guys feel fear. And in my book, Famous Faces Decoded, lo and behold, I discovered the guys felt more fear than the female celebrities in the book. Not that's by a wide margin, but they did, in fact. And I think that's one of the things we put on ourselves is guys are afraid of fear, ironically enough. Yeah, and, 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 I, think that, and I think that men tend to be... Uh, societally conditioned for higher levels of um, 
desire for approval. And so oftentimes the fear is I'll be disapproved of if I don't quote win, whatever that might be. Yeah, I have to be a winner. I have to show courage. And in fact, this is how Donald Trump was trained by his dad. You know, be a killer, be a winner. That was the mantra recited in the Trump household in Queens. Yeah, crazy. I mean, that that's... And I, I don't mind winning. I mean, I prefer winning to losing. I'll, I'll be quite honest. Sure. But at what cost and how do you get there? Well, when, when, Trump was, uh, when Trump was running and I was doing commentary on it, one of the things I said is from a, from a psychology point of view, uh, Trump has a winner hero uh, personality. And people said, what's that? You know, outside of the psychopathy, et cetera. But uh, um, that mentality is win at all costs, but I don't care about the prize. I just want to be the hero. So the prize was a job. It was called president. Guy's never had a job in his life. He didn't want the prize, but he wanted the hero. And so that's why he used language like only I can, only I can, it's only me. And that's why he's upset when he hears things like, you know, why, why do people not like me? And that Fauci is more important than I am or more popular than I am. It's because of the winner hero mentality and that's being stolen by Fauci in 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 in, uh, Trump's mind because Fauci gets the hero meant gets the hero he gets heroized and that's very very upsetting and then you know when you look at how he responded to Obama Obama had a lot of that going on too and you know that hero mentality not 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 projecting it but it was given and so it's it's a fascinating like looking at leaders from that point of view. And I'm really interested because uh, when I look at the future uh, debates and the future potential uh, presidency of Joe Biden, um, it's interesting for me to see what's really going on there too. Do you think, sorry. Well, I think one of the real keys for Biden is going to be, you know, very soon he's going to announce his VP choice, but also the cabinet. He should have a real opportunity to put together a quality cabinet should he prevail. Uh, because there are a lot of issues out there. And mm-hmm. a lot of people, I think, not just myself, have become deathly afraid that America is blowing it and, and losing its direction. And I would like to think there's going to be a lot of patriots prepared to step in and say, I will bring my expertise uh, to this cabinet and, and do something. And I think that Biden is temperamentally such that he can be open to that guidance and that input. And that could allow him to succeed. Because I'm not you know, deeply impressed with Biden's intellect, mind you, or even energy level at this point at the age of 77. But I think that ability to do what Lincoln did and co-op people, bring them in, That's have, a, have a team of advisors, if he can channel that kind of spirit, then that is very helpful. Because the really important thing, and whether it's business or politics, is it has to be a we there. You know, I mean, a, an employee signs on because, you know, obviously the CEO makes a lot more money than they do, but they're hoping there's something in it for them, that yes. the, the person's not going to just gobble up all the awards and the acclaim and the money, that there's some spillover that's going to benefit them. And I'll come along for that ride to the extent that it's, you know, comfortable and successful and I trust in you. And that's where Fauci has got it in spades over Trump right now, because right. one of the things we look for is also consistency. So, yes. you know, if you don't have consistency, uh, you know, anybody who's got, you know, any two cents of smarts to them will go, I don't know that I should be with you. Uh, you just seem to be veering from one side of the ditch to the other and we're never in the middle of the road. However, people are becoming emotionally invested. 
Oh, yeah. One of my quotes is that uh, we either learn from our mistakes or we invest in them, um, yeah. which means we dig deeper into them. And so even when the information is revealed that, oh, you're, you invested, uh, you invested decision-wise in something that's not worked out so well, people will often stay in that investment just because of their own ego. Um, I think that you're absolutely right. And I've actually said this recently that uh, I was not a big fan of Biden running um, because people voted Trump because for the same reason they voted for Obama, they wanted something different and they got something different. Good or bad is, is up to us to make our own decisions about. The interesting thing is they've asked for Biden to come back, which is a sense of normalcy. But the interesting thing that I find, and I'm really hoping it sticks, is that you have things like the Lincoln Project and real Republicans who are anti-Trump, but are still very conservative, uh, who are actually backing Biden. And so I, you know, I think there's a really wonderful opportunity to get some phenomenal conservative Republicans in that cabinet, along with some of the more liberals, uh, uh, and create a, a government of the people, for the people, by the people, rather than a government of the corporation, by the corporation, for the corporation. So, it, you know, for me, it's a, it's a pretty, this could be the brink of some, like, maybe to get people off the lazy train they were on with previous governments and actually make the change is going to take a fairly empty suit in Biden who can bring together people who are, and then listen to them and guide from there. Yeah. Well, Lincoln was certainly not an empty suit. I mean, the man no, who no, tried to get his the best, but I, I think in Biden's case, that's almost the best we can hope for that is that he's the good conductor of the train and yes. brings people in. I mean, even Machiavelli said the answer's in the middle. Yes. Uh, and you know, you, you have to bring people with you. I think that's just, so essential and yeah we shall stay tuned to, to, to see what happens of course yeah i mean i, I think we're 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 a very fascinating place from point of psychology from point of leadership from point of body language from point of facial coding i mean there's a lot there's a, you know, aside from aside from comedians i mean a lot of material to work with the rest <laughs> of us the rest of us are pretty uh, we're all pretty entertained in our own little worlds too <laughs> What yeah, is no. some what is something that is misunderstood about about you? What what is something that people misunderstand about what it is that you do? Because I, I I'm pretty sure that people are coming at this or I mean, even come at you in a very different perception of what it is you do. Um, well, first of all, I guess I should mention in terms of politics. I mean, I've been on a lot of times over the years for CNN and Fox and Minnesota. Yes, you see. And I think they, they think that I'm really, you know, potentially if I'm attacking their candidate that I've got a political ax to grind. I really approach facial coding based on here is a system. There are 23 expressions. What do I see on the face? You know, do mm -hmm. I possibly miss something? Am I infallible? You know, of course not. But I, I'm really trying to adhere to the system. Uh, so when I was on in 2008, just to take an example, if I'm on MSNBC and I say something nice about McCain, you know, one of the distractions for me is that I can see the person interviewing me is snarling because they're not happy with the fact that I'm doing that. If I go on Fox and I say something nice, you know, about Obama, you know, same thing in reverse. So I think that's one of the things that people miss. I think the another thing they sometimes miss is because five of the emotions uh, you know, are quote unquote negative in facial coding because you've got happiness and surprise, but then you also have 
fear and anger and sadness mm -hmm. and disgust and contempt is that I would be oriented to, you know, basically trying to, uh, you know, spill blood on everybody and that I'm a naysayer uh, and, and selling Mudville. Uh, but I'm not because again, no. the emotions, even the negative ones, quote unquote, have positive attributes to them it can be entirely appropriate. Uh, let's take a TV commercial, for instance. Problem solution is a really good format because yes. human beings are not very complicated and we understand contrast. So right. you take me from my pain and you give me the gain that should follow. Way too many commercials are just this bland, you know, mediocrity all the way through. There's no high point. Uh, and there's probably some low points just thanks to boredom, but it's a lot like going to a staff meeting. Nothing happens in the staff meeting. And after an hour, after you've all gotten emotional cancer from boredom, you leave the meeting. Uh, pharma commercials on TV are like that. Yeah. But I am someone who's a high energy and I'm looking for solutions. So yes, sometimes you have to point out the pain points to say, don't, don't, you know, don't settle. Go further. And that's probably that Bob Dylan influence in me someplace. Yeah. I want to push it to a better place. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really important thing for, for people to get here because, you know, I've had people say to me, you know, you're anti-Trump. And I'm like, no, when Trump was voted in, I said to my wife, I hope I'm wrong. I, you know, I'm just reading what's there and I hope I'm wrong. And, and you know, and I, I openly said and written about that when Obama was voted in, I was very happy because he was an articulate man of color. That was my bias. I wanted an articulate man of color after George Bush being the decider, who now looks like Einstein. But, uh, but you know, I wanted, I wanted that. Um, and at the same time, I've also been very critical of Obama and some of the things that he didn't do or did do. So I think it's really important for people to grasp that this is not a politically one-sided conversation. It's an observer conversation of facial expression, of facial coding, of body language, and of psychology. Yeah, and in that spirit, let me, in fact, switch over to the Democrats. I'll start with Obama. So yeah. in 2008, there, he was the front runner. By now, he had passed Hillary, who had been the presumptive you know, nominee. Yeah. And there gets to be a debate in Philadelphia, and all the press are going after him because they want the horse race to continue longer. And in the debate, Obama literally looks down his nose at the panelist of questioners. He leans back, and he looks down his nose, and he crosses his arms, and it's contempt. Right. And I turned to my wife at that moment. And I said, you know, I really like the guy. I like the hope. I like the intelligence, all of that. But this kind of emotional attitude and stance is going to get him into trouble in Washington, D.C., because you got to get down in the trenches and negotiate and work with people you don't respect. You just have to do it. Yeah. And I think Obama had a reasonably good presidency, but he was stymied in a lot of ways, and maybe he could have never overcome those. But one of the things I would point to is when he went golfing, he just went with his same buddies. Why wouldn't you take the Republican leaders and invite them along on the links? Because you need the FaceTime. You need yes. to make the emotional connection. And maybe you can't really get them to move, but you sure got to try on behalf of the country. And I think the same thing is true in a management team. Not everyone's going to be on board. I remember once giving a speech in Calgary and a guy came up to me afterwards and said, could you come to Winnipeg? And I said, sure. He said, I said, why? He said, because I'm part of an eight man team. We've been together for a long time. We actually all kind of knew each other in college. But at this point, we've really fallen out and we basically hate each other's guts. But we are legally financially locked into this thing and running the company and we need some intervention. Uh, yeah. these things happen. You do have to smooth the waters. So that's Obama in a nutshell. Lots of upside, but it wasn't without some contempt on his face, for instance. And he got really frustrated over time. 
Uh, it was yeah, amazing. Was, uh, yeah. In Hillary's case, you know, I was not a fan of Hillary's especially, and especially not emotionally. Uh, very given to contempt, very given to anger, uh, and intense anger. Mm -hmm. uh, just like Bill Clinton actually was quite given to anger. Now, he was better at masking it with more smiles, which he genuinely felt. Hillary really didn't get to happiness very easily. Uh, you could point to her childhood. You could point to Bill's infidelities. There's lots of things going on there, but certainly a colder fish. Uh, mm. I did not find it possible. I mean, I wanted a female president. I just exactly. said, I'm not sure I want this one. Yeah. Um, so for any listeners going, uh, you really beat up on Trump a lot. Uh, I tried to be a, an equal abuser uh, of both sides <laughs> of the aisle. And uh, yeah, there are no saints that walk among us necessarily. And you just have to look at the person for what I think is their tendencies. As George Orwell said, by the age of 50, a man has the face he deserves. We do have emotional tendencies and you just got to suss them out and think about what the implications are. When a leader is working with, you know, a corporate leader, um, a business leader is working with somebody who he sees enormous potential in, uh, or she sees enormous potential in, sees that this is somebody who could do great things, but sees a lot of, let's say that the, this leader has some level of uh, emotional acuity and, and sees in this person who they see a lot of potential in, they see this contempt. They see these issues that are not dealt with that are coming up, um, which from a psychology point of view for me are childhood issues or whatever it might be, uh, sees them coming up, doesn't want to let a person go because they've got great potential, but realizes they're toxic to the, to the culture because of the way that they might be with others. What would be your guidance to, to that leader? Because I think that that's something oftentimes a leader is faced with. Here's somebody who is tactically, strategically, strategically good, but emotionally poor uh, or, under, you know, there's a bubbling undercurrent. What, what would you say to that person? Well, a couple of things. One is, you know, in terms of your effectiveness in the position, you do need to pay attention to this. You can play to their self-interest. Uh, you know, John Mayer, uh, one of the founders of EQ, uh, endorsed my Famous Faces Decoded book. We had some nice conversations by phone and email. He said, well, there's a lot of overblown claims as to what EQ can do, like you're going to be a multi-billionaire the day after you get on board and, and sign the document to become an EQ expert. He said, but really solidly, it's at least a 6% advantage in your career. 6% mm -hmm. is actually huge. Uh, again, yeah. I'm a tennis player. The number one player in the world over the last 20 years, male or female, only wins 53% of the points. 53% of the points. Really? Uh, in presidential races, you know, to have a six-point lead is a huge lead. Most huge. elections are decided by two points or less. So I would first play to their self-interest and say, uh, you seem pretty motivated. <laughs> You're pretty driven. Uh, if you really want to look out for yourself, then you really need to go here because there's an opportunity to lift your game. And I can tell you it's about 6% and 6% matters. The second thing I think you'd have to do is say, you have to look at who you're bringing with you and how people are reacting to you. Uh, one of the influences for me in starting sensory logic is I happen to read about attachment theory and John mm -hmm. Bowlby. And this goes back to early childhood and your attachment or lack of attachment to your mother. And yep. you tend to be either someone who's securely attached or the opposite end, kind of like a Trump, you're avoidant of people mm -hmm. and situations, or you kind of fall in between and insecurely attached. 
Um, so as someone who's got, let's say, a lot of anger, huh, what's the chances that you're not securely attached? Probably pretty high. Yep. And what are the chances that you're not making your staff feel securely attached to you? That's also probably pretty high. So I'll go back to tennis one more time. Roger Federer had an anger issue. Mm -hmm. He was going to prevent him from being the player he, in fact, became. Not just for himself and blowing it, you know, in the match, but you also have a ref who can throw you out of the match. You yeah. have lines judges who may take a personal aversion to you, and maybe they just shade against you a little bit. And you need a coach. You need trainers. You need people to work with you. So that whole little mini climate that you have to build around you was something that Roger Federer realized would be, you know, problematic. And he made the adjustment and he got the rewards. So I would probably just go right to Roger Federer and say, here's your opportunity and here's your threat. And yeah, ultimately it's up to you whether you're going to rise to the opportunity. But again, I want to bring this up, Dan, um, because again, I absolutely agree with you fully. There's nothing I would disagree with. Um, on the other side though, is this person saying, uh, uh, my attachment is poor. Uh, I've gone through whatever the trauma was. Um, I've risen in my career through command and control and being a bully. Um, yeah. Okay. Maybe I can't get any further. Um, maybe I'll just do my own thing. And a lot of them do. Um, and because of that attachment issue, they're not going to show that vulnerability to, to not only to their own people, but even in private. I mean, it's one of the reasons I, one of the things I loved about the Sopranos was he had a therapist, right? I mean, you know, yeah. I don't know that it was that great, but you know, the, the, here's the, the guy who is cold and a murderer and all those kinds of things who can actually look at some of the issues was like, like I was watching the show thinking, Oh my God, I wonder how many, asshole leaders are watching this thinking maybe it's okay to go to therapy I was like, yes. <laughs> well I, I think it brings up the real importance of, of having a mentor actually someone you don't yes. feel in competition with uh they're quite possibly a generation older than you uh, i happen to have known jerome robbins a little bit and you know jerry went you know relied on balanchine in the new york city opera that was someone who was further along career could bring jerry under their wing, you know, guide him and so forth. And that was really instrumental to his development. In fact, I think once he didn't have Balanchine or he didn't have Leonard Bernstein collaborating with him on West Side Story, then I think Jerry's career, you know, you know got harmed a little bit. I think there was a little more rigidity that came in. So mm -hmm. yes, you may not get along with everybody in every situation. In fact, uh, I would argue if you go to the big five factor, these are the traits of openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, uh, both from the presidential level and in my studies looking at corporate leaders, actually you wanna be a bit low on agreeableness. You, you actually, because I'm not saying EQ is all about mamby-pamby and everything is we're gonna do all with color crayons. Uh, I am saying, you know, this is a stream of information that you need to deal with because we are social beings. But in fact, as a leader, agreeableness if it keeps you from making hard choices and maybe firing or demoting someone or shifting their responsibilities, uh, you know, that's not going to make you a great leader. So this isn't just about being a marshmallow. It's about being wise enough to make advances. Uh, I'll circle back to Federer just for one more moment. It's not like the guy doesn't have any anger. No. It's just that he's channeling the anger. That's yes. a whole lot different than, you know, going off, you know, John McEnroe style and getting thrown out of the tournament. Yeah, there is that.
when you um when you look at today i mean you know it's it's a different world than when you and i started um social media filters etc and also botox i had this discussion with a friend of mine um who's in the similar world to us um botox and you know some of the hyper botox um do you think it makes it easier for that person to lie do you think it makes it easier for that person to to disguise or do you think they still give it away well my, my recourse there is we got of course 44 muscles you know in the face it's a very sensitive part of the face uh, you know, we have more facial muscles than any other species on the planet, for that matter. So Botox typically, you know, might impair a couple of those muscle movements. So you, you lose a bit, but you don't, you know, by no means do you even come close to losing everything. What I would fear a whole lot more is plastic surgery. Oh. I mean, Michael Jackson, you know, I could not facially code <laughs> later in his career. When I, he, he's in the book, Famous Faces Decoded, but I'm working on Michael, you know, from childhood, you know, through earlier stages of his career. And by the later stages, I just had to let it go and say, that's not a person I can facially code. No. Uh, so th that's much more of a concern as far as I, I would say. You, you talked, to, I just want to circle back quickly, because you, one of the things you talked about was uh, reading about attachment theory. And that was around the same time as what you, when you started to discover facial coding and Ekman's work. Tell us about that, how that came together for you, because um, I, I think innovation is art. Is, is art. And, and what I mean by that is that the greatest artists take two things that don't go together and find a way to, to sculpt it into something magnificent. Uh, and you've taken attachment theory along with facial coding and you put these things together. Tell us a little bit about how those two things came together that really catapulted you into going immediately into, okay, I'm going to start my own thing. <laughs> um, well, one is I had gone through a divorce. Uh, my wife had fallen in love with someone on her staff at work. Uh, I can't say I was entirely happy in the marriage, but I don't think I was going to leave the marriage. So this was thrust upon me and I was feeling a lot of emotions. Sure. So I, I wouldn't say I was an emotions expert before that happened, no. but I had to deal with them. And so one time I'm in the library, the Minneapolis Public Library, and there's really not a lot of literature in, in the men's section necessarily, but there is women's studies literature you know, galore. And I happened to notice a book called The Alchemy of Love and Lust. I went, well, mm. that's kind of interesting. And that was actually about biochemical reactions, dopamine and all these things that flood through our system that do cause us to react to things. So it was Balby's attachment theory. It was biochemical reactions. Uh, it was, you know, the big five factor in terms of personality traits. There were a lot of things that started to bubble along. So even though my PhD is in English, uh, it's almost like I went back and got a second one in psychology. Mm -hmm. And I got to know Andrew Ortoni, who's a professor emeritus from Northwestern University in psychology and the man who helped get me to Paul Ekman. And we were out to dinner with some of his friends once. And he said, just look, Dan's going to know the citations. He's going to know the literature. You might think this guy is just a business person or an English person, uh, but he really you know, has read this stuff and found it interesting. So for me, it was, yes, all this synergy of the things coming together. And I was working for a boss who, quite honestly, was rather egocentric. His nickname was King Louis. And we supposedly did market research, but it was all essentially this person's opinion. I was interested in really knowing what was going on for the customer because I thought that was better for our clients. And uh, when I first started reading about this stuff and facial coding, I thought, oh, this is fascinating. I could bring it in and, and Lou could use it, but I don't think Lou's really going to use it. So I'm just going to go off in my own direction. And, you know, it was challenging. 
Uh, but I just said, this is so fascinating. How can I resist giving it a shot? And, and, fabulous. and, I, and I ran. Who is, who is a uh, leader um, or a company that you look at and you think, these people are doing a really great job of what it is that I teach, what it is that I share, what it is that I've written about? Even though they may have never seen you, may have never heard of you, maybe never read any of your books, but they are in many ways personification of what it is that you're saying it takes. Uh, actually, Tim Cook, um, he's sitting on top of the most valuable company because he's such an interesting contrast to Steve Jobs. Yes. Um, I was at a conference once and the person flashed a big photograph of Steve Jobs on the screen and said, so what do you think his face is showing? And I raised my hand. I happened to be in the front row and I said, well, I'm a facial coding expert. Uh, a lot of anger is the answer. That was not the answer the guy wanted to hear. No. Uh, no, he, he, did, he wanted something completely different. But that's who Jobs was, and it drove him, and it was the person he, he was. You know, Cook, as someone who inherited the company, you know, I think chose to dial it down. It fits his personality. Uh, there's a little bit more reflection there. We talked about sadness earlier, and that's one of the things that he shows. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of wistfulness to him. Like, I don't want to, you know, I, I inherited an ocean liner. It's really important I don't crash it on the rocks. So I need to move it along. I need to try to keep the spirit of innovation alive. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think he's tepid, but he's careful in, in yeah. how he approaches things. And I, I have been really interested to see how he monitors things. And I'll be really interested to see how he handles the challenge from Congress regarding what they're going to do about big tech. So here, you know, talking about big tech, let's talk about Zuckerberg for a second. Oh, my God. Because there's a face. Yeah. <laughs> there's a face. What do you see there? Because that, for me, is, like, fascinating. I mean... Obviously, he is fodder for night, uh, late night comedy. But what do you see there? Because I know what I see. I, I almost think he's bipolar, emotionally speaking. Not in the clinical sense of it. But emotionally, but, yeah. But in one way, he can really go up to the high register of happiness. I mean, the guy made a lot of money. He made it really early. He made it on his own terms. And mm -hmm. there is a, I, I know someone who's worked for, for Facebook. Uh, I've read the book called Chaos Monkeys about a guy who was working the, in the company. And it completely confirms my instinct that this is someone who just doesn't bother with the details. So mm. when I said that happiness can make you sloppy with the details, he fits that. At the same time, there's almost like this change going on. It's like it's the picture of Dorian Gray, the, the uh, famous work yeah. by Oscar Wilde, because I really see the anger coming on because now the empire is getting challenged, mm -hmm. and, you know, potentially threatened, and he's a control freak. I could not believe it when he testified in front of Congress, you know, some time ago, that people didn't catch him on it, because he made these, you know, lukewarm assurances that he would look into matters and he would make changes. And I'm looking at my TV screen going, no way in hell, he's not mm -hmm. gonna budge an inch. Um, so that's the second reference point. I have one last one, which is on this question of, you know, is your data protected? And, you know, is this, this altruistic mission to Facebook? Uh, there was a fascinating documentary on Frontline. And one of the moments was when he first raised this question about privacy. Uh, earlier in my career, I worked for the, in the, in the director's office, uh, the Division of Consumer Affairs in New Jersey. Oh. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's part of my background is to look out for the consumer. Right. And when this question came up, he was absolutely frightened. Absolutely mm. 
frightened, so much so they said, you need some water? Do you want to take off your hoodie? You look like you're sweating a lot. I mean, the moderator at the conference was actually worried they was going to do a meltdown. Well, really? fear and anger may seem like they don't fit together, but in fact, they're two sides of the same coin. Yes. Here you think the, the challenge is too big for you, and oh my God, what am I going to do about it? And then you can flip to anger and say, well, I'm just going to railroad my way through it, and that's how I'm going to deal with the danger. And so they really are on the same, same dynamic. And so as the happiness, to my mind, seems to subside, uh, it's the anger that's taking the foreground, but lurking underneath it, I think, is the fear. So we have to go to the other, the other Titan, which is Bezos. Because for me, I remember seeing Bezos on Oprah Winfrey when he was just breaking through and he was talking about buying knee pads uh, so that he could pack boxes. You know, and, you know, and he was this kind of dorky guy. And now, you know, you see images of him in his, you know, his sunglasses and the shaved head and he's jacked. Uh, you know, and it's like, I mean, side by side, they are completely different people. What What are you seeing there? Well, I think we're going to probably see a sort of Dorian Gray shift once again, uh, taking place over time and, and more movement towards uh, anger and disgust, which are both really, you know, virile emotions, aggressive emotions in different ways. But where he started from was actually curiosity. Yeah, uh, what I really noticed about him was the eyebrows lifting, the eyes go wide. His dad was a circus performer. Oh, I did Florida, not know that. Southern Florida, and it makes so much sense because really, what Bezos is to my mind, he's a high wire act. He went out. He dared to go into this field. He's tried lots of things, some of which have failed, some of which have been very successful. But he consolidates the gains and he lets the losses go but he keeps trying and experimenting with things. So I really think he is that kind of circus performer who is alert to opportunities and challenges and just where am I gonna go next with this whole thing? You combine that with not the strongest smile, but more happiness certainly than Zuckerberg manages on most occasions these days. Yeah. So that would be his baseline, but I think you have seen and will continue to see the change. I mean, He's gone through the divorce now. I'm not sure what the settlement terms were. I lost track of that. My life is busy. I don't just follow celebrity divorces every day. Come on. Um, I know that's all you yeah. do all day. Well, and then you tweet about it, right? Well, I do, I do follow some of them when I happen to be in London just at the time of uh, uh, Sir Paul McCartney's divorce from Mills. Oh, right. Yeah, there was a photograph of Paul caught on cell phone stepping out of the courthouse with just absolutely boiling over with you know frustration and indignation over this whole thing because quite likely she was happily after the money and was going to get yeah. a good deal of it and then the cruel british tabloid headline was yesterday <laughs> was what they put with a photograph Ooh. but it was the most intense emoting especially of the negative kind that i'd ever seen from paul mccartney who mm -hmm. yeah was often a fairly happy camper although early in the Beatles career, he showed a good deal of sadness because getting over his mother's premature death was, was really difficult for Paul. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you and I could talk for hours, particularly about, about the music people because there's so many of those. I mean, like we talked about with Bowie and, and Lennon. I mean, you know, like this, they, these are complex characters um, from a psychological study point of view for me that are just really fascinating. Dan, we're coming to the end of the show. This has been a joy, my friend. Thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate it. Before we go, there are two things I want to do. Uh, 
in a moment, I'm going to ask you to share with our viewers and our listeners where they can find out more about you and, and uh, what it is that you do and all your resources. But before that, I always like to leave our, our listeners with a single piece of practical guidance that you're offering them that will allow them to take in what it is uh, that you have suggested aside from going to get your books and, and following all your materials and your podcast, et cetera, what is something that you would give as a practical guidance that they could go do in the next 24 hours? In the next 24 hours. Um, I would suggest they go back to their photographs actually. Uh, Cause you talked about people not wanting to look at themselves closely. I actually think you should go through and you should take 10, 20, 30 photographs, including from different periods of your life. And then you should take the really simple uh, big five personality trait test. And you should have someone close to you, your mother, uh, your wife, your business partner, take the same test and see how much you compare. Uh, when I've done work in pro sports, my favorite question to ask people, uh, it catches them off guard is, how would your mom describe you? So Ooh. I think you should do the work of how would you describe yourself? What are you seeing yourself? And then look at the comparison. I think that alone, which is pretty easily done, can lift your self-awareness five notches. How would your mom describe you? That's pretty damn good, man. That's really good. I like that one. Thank you. Sure. So again, Dan, it's been a pleasure and honor. Please tell our, our uh, listeners, our viewers, where they can find out more about you and all the resources that you have. Sure. My company is called Sensory Logic. So guess what? The website is the three W's dot sensorylogic.com. Uh, I also have a podcast that I do called Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, which is on the New Books Network. And I have a blog called Faces of the Week that draws on facial coding. So you got three different angles to figure out what I'm doing these days. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure and an honor. I appreciate you being with us. I hope you'll stay with us to the end. And for you, dear listener, I hope you got a lot out of this because I certainly didn't. It was a joy. And you can hang out with other conscious leaders and chat about this episode that you've been listening to or any past episodes by going into either our Facebook or our LinkedIn groups. Just look for the Leadership and Loyalty podcast. Because it doesn't matter how successful you are if your employees and your customers don't understand what gives your company meaning, you're only working at a fraction of your capability. To find out how you can hire me, Dov Barron, as a speaker or leadership strategist for yourself or your organization, simply go to dovbarron.com. Because unified meaning, or as we call it, finding your dragon fire, is the one single monolithic difference between mediocrity and greatness for individuals and companies. I want to thank you for sharing the show with everyone you know. Till next time, stay curious, my friends. Stay curious about what's really going on in your face that you may not be aware of. Take a look in the mirror. Take a look at some old photographs. See what you come up with. I'm Dov Barron. I'm here to assist you tapping into your Dragonfire to reach that next level of clarity, focus, purpose, and profit in your business, your life, and your leadership impact. And I am out. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>